Well, it certainly isn't easy being 12 years old. It's not easy particularly being the parent of a 12-year-old either. Perhaps only a little more so if that 12-year-old happens to be the incarnate son of God. This is the only passage in scripture that tells us a story of Jesus between infancy and adulthood. It's the only story in scripture that gives us a glimpse of Jesus participating in the universal human experience of being a kid. Being a kid complete with all the joys and all the frustrations that that involves. Imagine how it is to be Jesus in this story. 12 years old, just a year short of young manhood in his culture, given a chance to run around in the big city during the most important festival of the year. He finds his way to the temple where his passion for God finds an outlet. He begins spending time with these older, wiser teachers, and lo and behold, he actually has a contribution of his own to make to the conversation. He's being taken seriously by these adults, adults who are not his parents. Jesus perhaps begins to sense within himself something new about his calling, about his vocation, about his passion. He grapples with his identity. And of course, while all this wonderful adolescent development is happening, he is completely oblivious to the hell that he is putting his parents through. Which lets us draw the theological conclusion that when the word of God became incarnate as a human being, he took on all of human nature, including the adolescent part. Including that quality of utter and complete absorption in the events at hand that makes parents tear their hair out and use dreaded phrases like teenage irresponsibility. It's no wonder that they're angry when they find him. And maybe even more so after his answer, which after all seems a bit flip. Your father and I have been out of our minds worrying, looking for you. What, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Poor Joseph gets the worst of that remark with Jesus's play on words on the word father. And there's a theological point to be drawn here, too, about how Jesus's identity as the child of God is more fundamental than his identity as child of Joseph and Mary. But it's also hard to avoid hearing a strong hint of, oh yeah, you're not my real dad anyway. Which, if you're from a blended family, is a dynamic you may able, be able to appreciate very well. So there's some pain in this story. And there's also something very precious. Jesus is growing up, and his parents can't fully understand him. He's beginning to enter into a world where they can't completely follow. And in some way, they seem to get that. And there's grace in this story, too. It says he goes back home with them, and he is obedient with them, at least perhaps mostly. And it says that Mary treasures all these things in her heart. And it says Jesus continues to grow in favor with God and people. There's so much in this story to identify with for any of us. 
Have you ever in your life felt like your parents didn't understand you? Ever wished you had a unique, special destiny? Have you ever parented a young person who took you for granted and who knew just how to say the things that would hurt? Have you ever had a family conflict that broke a piece of your heart and found a way to move through it and perhaps reconcile? This story is so precious because it's so deeply incarnational, which is a 25 cent word for saying it is so human. It is so illustrative of what it means for God to be human. His vocation may be unique, but this experience of being an adolescent is one that we all can share. Because each of us, as we grow older, has to come to grips with the task of figuring out just who we really are going to be in the world. For Jesus, that identity is teacher, leader, healer, and of course, the eternal Son of God, which is a vocation that we as individuals don't grapple with. And yet, in our own way, we do. Because as Paul says today in the letter to the Ephesians, in our baptism, we become children of God by adoption through Jesus Christ. And that means that each of us as Christians is given a share in the relationship between God and God's beloved child, Jesus. And so each of us in our own way, in our own little Jesus way, has that truest, deepest identity of being the child of God. Back when I lived in Seattle, I volunteered for a while as a chaplain at the county juvenile detention center. And I would go once a week and go visit with young people there. And one week I had a young man ask to talk to me. Let's call him Rico. And Rico told me a number of things. He said he was worried about his mom because she was in danger of being deported. And he was worried that depending on how his drug treatment program went, he might not be released in time to see her. Meanwhile, he was also worried about his own kids, because at age 16, Rico was also a father of three children. But none of this was the real reason that he had asked to talk to me. Rico told me he wanted me to help him pray. He wanted to pray for all these worries, but he also wanted to pray for his fellow young people at the detention center. And in particular, he wanted to work on praying for his enemies. I was so struck by what he said that I jotted down what he said to me shortly afterwards. He told me, I feel like I need to pray for my enemies because God loves them too. I don't need to fight them to prove who's the bigger man. Praying for them is what Jesus would do. Jesus, 2,000 years earlier, came to discover that being God's child was a deeper identity than what the world knew him as, Mary and Joseph's child. And 2,000 years later, Rico was discovering that his own identity as God's child was much deeper than any of the identities that the world saw him as, be it a juvenile offender, or a drug user, or an immigrant, or any of the other labels that might be applied to him. Rico was coming to see himself as God's beloved child 
And out of that, he was learning to see his enemies as God's children, too. Who are you? That's a question that we begin to try to answer as children in adolescence, and we keep answering it throughout our whole lives. And who you truly are is not just who your parents say you are, not just who your friends say you are, who your culture says you are, or even who your church says you are. Who you really are is who God says you are. And what God says is, you are my child. You are mine, uniquely made, uniquely redeemed, and uniquely loved. When we grasp that identity, when we're secure in it, we can discover the strength to live the abundant life that God calls us to live, even when it calls us to do hard things, like forgiving our enemies from the detention center or from the cross. There's a writer named Mark Bazzuti-Jones, and he's written a reflection about what it can feel like to imaginatively experience ourselves as children of God. He writes, act silly to make God laugh. Curl up in the arms of God. Ask God to read you a story. Allow God to throw you up in the air. Play hide-and-seek with God. Allow God to play hide-and-seek with you. Cry when God goes away. Squeal with delight when God comes back. Listen to God say how much you are loved. <laughs>